not directly security related decisions that you have to make is when you take on the mantle of the business. People always talk about align with the business, speak to the business in their language. People always use these phrases as a CISO. And every time someone says the business in those sentences and those phrases and those concepts, what they're really saying is the business is this entity that is separate from you. Well, as a CISO, you are part of the business. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. This is your host, Alan Alford, and today I don't have a guest. And the reason I don't have a guest is that two weeks ago now on LinkedIn, I posted and asked me anything, an AMA, and said, I'm a five-time CISO, I'm a one-time CTO, what questions do you have for me? I'll answer them on the show. Well, we had so many folks ask so many good questions. We recorded the first AMA last week, and I'm now doing number two as we speak because there were just so many more good questions to get through. So without further ado, here we go. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, B. Liebert says, with all the shiny objects out there distracting CISOs, what should a CISO focus on to reduce risk? Now, I'm going to point out something here. People, process, and technology are always the three ways we talk about solving the problems. What we don't often talk about is the fact that people, process, and technology are also the three sources of the problems we're solving in security. So it's important to me to do a business impact analysis to sort of get the punch list of what matters the most and to then sort of do the threat modeling or attack surface, use your imagination, whatever you want to call it, analyze things, ask questions of the business, and figure out how the things you care about the most are at risk. And I can guarantee you, you're going to find people in process and not just technology as part of the problem statement. So obviously people, process, and technology becomes the solution statement in in a nice flow. And you notice technology is only a third of that equation. So I think the most important thing to do is to stack rank your priorities to really get a handle on your top risks, which is probably defined by bigger than just the BIA because it may well be likelihood elevates things to the top versus just impact. But at the end of the day, I think getting on top of your risk, knowing what the heck they are, and being prepared to tackle them on the fronts where they exist with people in process just as often with technology, do that and you're not going to get caught up in the shiny objects. So that's my answer to that one. All right, Karen Anderson, principal consultant over at Optiv, says, are you comfortable turning on the light in a dark room so we can see what we're really dealing with? And I say, yes, absolutely I am. However, I'm going to disclaim that. There is a difference between turning on the light and saying, here's what we really face. These are the known risks. This is our maturity. These are the business objectives we're failing to align with in security. Whatever negative stuff you might have to bubble up. It's very important not to fall into the trap of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And there's a difference between socializing what's wrong and scaring people with what's wrong. And it's an important subtlety that you have to pay attention to. One of the tips I always give new CISOs is if you're going to bring up the risk, at least bring up the beginnings of a solution, or here's the steps we're taking to scope this further. Don't just bring up the negatives without having some positives in hand. And the other trick is obviously just don't fearmonger, don't scare people, just present the facts. Philippe Gontko, lead risk analyst at Here Technologies, says, being in the CISO role for five times, have you started liking the business side of things more, or have you always been interested in business and doing business with security is the perfect match? 
I had nothing to do with the business in the early days. I wanted nothing to do with business in the early days. The archetype of the businessman, the guy with the briefcase in the 80s, like I wanted nothing to do with that guy. Well, I started as a hacker when I was a kid, became a sysad, kind of went back into security as my focus in IT, worked on the big iron Unixes, worked on Windows, worked on Linux, worked on NetWare and Lantastic. I'm giving away my age now. But the NetNet is, all of that stuff originally for me was learning and exploring systems. And I think I mentioned on the last show, the pivotal moment that got me into the business perspective was seeing the business as another system to be explored and to a certain extent overcome, right? Same thing you do with a system when you're a hacker trying to get your way in and trying to make the machine do what you need to do. Same sort of phenomenon. So once I had that pivotal moment, that's when I began getting into the business. That was so many years ago now that I consider myself to be much more a business CISO than a technology CISO. But there you have it. Brian Wright, InfoSec Specialist, GRC at Comscope, says, what kind of goals and direction would you lay out for your security awareness program? What metrics would you be looking at to see if you're successful? So one of the first things I do that not everybody does, and I'm going to give a disclaimer here, I'm on the board of advisors at Living Security, so that means I have a bit of a stake. They're doing it right. They're measuring risk and likelihood on specific individual levels. In other words, the individual person level. It might be because this person has more sensitive access to more sensitive data. It might be because this person exhibits more risky behaviors. But the idea is you want to sort of stack rank. You don't just blindly apply security awareness everywhere. You want to stack rank. You want to understand who your highest risk people are, what the highest risk behaviors might be and tailor your security awareness to that end. It should be more than just training. People always talk about, oh, the annual training has been replaced by the shorter burst, clever training. And yeah, that's so common now. I think that's just the default. But it needs to be a little bit deeper than that, a little more tailored than that. And as to the metrics, I want to see a reduction in risky behaviors, which I'm going to sort of quietly report and not necessarily socialize company-wide. And then there's the positive metrics on things like who reported the fake fish in a fake phishing campaign, not who clicked, but rather who reported. Focus on the positives and encourage people at a departmental level, get a competition going, who's catching these things and who's reporting them. Well done, well done, and stay focused on those positive metrics. John Hayden over at Trend Micro, he asked a question on the last show, but he had another one here. He says, question for a five-time CISO, what's the most stressful security incident you've been an integral part of? Obviously, I can't share details of any specific incidents in any specific places, but I can say that at one point in my career, I faced a ransomware situation where all of the normal prep you recommend for ransomware, let's get MFA in place, let's make sure we have complex passwords, let's have a good identity and access management on the back end, let's make sure we have protection on all the endpoints and the servers, and more importantly, let's have offline backups None of that stuff was followed. None of that stuff was done ahead of time. And so the recovery on the part of this ransomware event was phenomenally stressful. These folks, there was no way they were going to be able to pay. And so there you have it. It was a forced recovery without any of the means of a good recovery in hand. It was a nightmare. It took forever. Cybird Security, the company, not the person here, asked me discussing goals and program outcomes at a small company versus a large corporation. Goals and program outcomes at a small corporation, generally speaking, and I've worked in a security leadership role, by the way, in companies literally as small as five employees and as large as 50,000. So I've done the full gamut here. The smaller the company, the more likely I can present the information, the goals, the metrics, the actual formatting of the report, whatever it might be. I get to use my templates, my processes, and my methods. As the company gets larger, it's not enough for me to just blindly throw my stuff over the fence and say, here's the story from a security perspective. I have to learn 
what other departments are doing. I have to learn what the most common methods of presentation are. I have to learn what is the CEO or the board like? What are they used to? What's the kind of information and what format of that information do they want to ingest? You have to flex and learn. Maybe it's a heat map. Maybe it's a red, yellow, green. Maybe it's a bar chart. Maybe it's a complex bubble chart. Whatever it might be, you have to learn how to tailor your story to the formats, means, and methods. And of course, hit the same metrics as well of whatever has sort of already been established in that large corporation. So that's the big difference to me. Fabian Braun, Cyber Threat Intelligence Analyst, says, CTO, you need someone to help you build up cool stuff? The answer is not right now. I've got a fantastic team at the day job. I love their work. I love what they're doing. We're cool right now, but thank you. Jeffrey Heller, account executive, New England and New Jersey. I'm not sure who he's with. He says, how are you going to keep this one from the board of directors? Why is it always easier to pay up when the damage is done, IR legal, reputational PR, versus investing up front in solutions at a way lower cost? This is a very interesting phenomenon. There have been studies conducted that have, in the cybersecurity world, have proven that after-the-fact costs are almost always greater than the proactive and preemptive costs of get the control in place versus suffer the consequences of you didn't have that control. There have been studies that have proven this. Even if there's not a specific study, you can almost always do the cost analysis, go look at the Verizon Data Breach Incident Report and compare that with other sources of data, and you can put together your own argument pretty quickly. I do often have this argument in my back pocket and can even back it up with numbers and citations of whatever the latest and greatest might be. I'll go find that, get it, put it together, have that at the ready. Sometimes I lead with that, sometimes I trail with that, sometimes it's merely in my back pocket, but it's more important to me to really remain risk-focused. In other words, if you are talking about the concrete and specific risks, if you have gotten consensus from the business as to what the stack ranking of those risks is, and that's likelihood impact, business impact analysis, crown jewels, and whatever some of these other phrases are, you get the idea. You've gotten buy-in on what the main risks are. You should be able to present those, the material impact of those risks, and then also offset that with the costs of addressing the risk. And it should really be that simple an equation. If we're going to spend $25,000 up front to avoid $250,000 of risk, is that a worthwhile investment versus the same twenty-five dollars over here will solve $3.5 million in risk? That kind of analysis is really what you want to be conducting at the business level because deciding what risk you're going to accept, deciding what you might transfer, what you might partially mitigate, et cetera, should be based on that simple cost analysis. And I call it simple it's very hard sometimes to really truly quantify and demonstrate the cost of risk. There's a whole world of risk quantification out there that I'm not going to get into here, but folks know there's various methods, some more scientific and mathematically sound than others. The costing is from there another exercise of measurement that sometimes has some vagueness to it. But ideally, you can get to some kind of number about how bad it's going to be if we don't do the thing. And then what the cost of doing the thing is should be pretty straightforward. That's part and parcel of the CISO's day job. So that's my answer there. Michael Yehoshua, keynote speaker, content creator, heavy metal enthusiast. He says, we always hear horror stories about marketers who try to get a CISO's attention. Was there ever something a marketer did right to get a CISO's attention? And the answer is yes. Starting with the basic rules, don't insult, don't assume, don't presume, and don't harass. Let's start there. And so that means you can get a pretty simple message out about, hey, are you facing this problem? If so, you might want to look at us. We're pretty cool. And we think we're a good solution for solving this problem. And maybe you even throw in a little fact or two. We had a blind study or, you know, we're number one market leader or God forbid we're the top in the Gartner quadrant, whatever it might be. Have some little facts to substantiate why you think you're a good solution. Ask the question. Don't assume the problem statement is there. Then the rest of it, honestly, to me, has always been timing. 
the ones that have been successful with me happen to be the, hey, do you have this problem? When I actually, in fact, did have that problem, you have to understand that 99% of the time, even if that's the approach a marketer uses, I'm probably not tackling the problem they're there to solve, and I'm going to take a pass. All right, your own Levy, CISO over at Dolby, who I also just recorded a show with last night on the new SEC proposals. That's going to be a phenomenal show. He says, I'm not a black hat either. So happy to record with you. Well, guess what? We did. It's going to be a good show. Look out for that one. Jaden Turner, CTO, CIO, CISO, proven disruptor, et cetera, et cetera, says, how effective do you think it would be to hire an actual hacker as a team member? I'm of two minds on this one. And I have, in fact, brought in outside pen test firms who told me up front, this guy that's going to be hacking your stuff used to be a bad guy, is reformed and working for us now, and is going to give you good results because they really know what they're doing. I believe that's true. I think the bad guys probably have honed their skills better than the red teaming and the pen testing and the white hats. And the folks who do their best to mimic the bad guy behavior aren't going to be as effective or as accurate and true to form as an actual bad guy. That's a true, I think, scientific statement. But then you get into the whole morality thing, right? Do I want to support somebody that was on the wrong side of the fence? Do I believe in reform, giving people a second chance, et cetera, et cetera? I have in the past hired firms that deployed these guys, been a tad uncomfortable with it, but let it happen. I have never directly hired a reformed black hat on one of my teams. I don't know that I've got a hard and fast rule against that, but there is a certain amount of discomfort there. I'll say that. Drew Brown, he's been on the show before. He says, favorite adult beverage as a CISO, and then did it change with CISO gigs number two to five, and did it change with the CTO role? Favorite adult beverage I used to be a red wine drinker way back when I started the CISO gig. It's now whiskey. (laughs) I'm not sure what that speaks to, but I've become a fan of whiskeys and bourbons. So I don't know what that means, but there you have it. All right, Brad Voris with about every single certification on planet Earth after his name says, what's the most difficult decision you've had to make for the role that wasn't directly security related? Not directly security related decisions that you have to make is when you take on the mantle of the business. People always talk about align with the business, speak to the business in their language. People always use these phrases as a CISO. And every time someone says the business in those sentences and those phrases and those concepts, what they're really saying is the business is this entity that is separate from you. Well, as a CISO, you are part of the business. Every C-suite leader is the business collectively. And in fact, even if you are a practitioner, you are part of the business. So treating the business as a separate entity makes no sense to me. You have to be part of the business and actively accept that that's part of your role is collectively we are the business, which means I am partially the business. And if you look at it that way, there are business decisions I've had to make that were the right decision for the business, that were the wrong decision for security per se, rather not what met with my security agenda or my goals or my timelines, but it was the right decision for the business. Those are the moments I think that sometimes arise that have been difficult for me. It's not easy to walk away and say my primary mission as a member of the business is to represent security. And sometimes you have to compromise on security for the sake of other business agendas. Sometimes maybe there's layoffs that have to happen to solve business problems. And sometimes maybe you have to lay those folks off on your team. That's another moment. Laying people off sucks. And nobody likes to do it, but as a leader, I've been through it before, and there you have it. 
Harmon Singe says, how do you make decisions to buy a security product? Does daily firefighting blur longtime security roadmap? And do you feel the heat? Yes, I feel the heat. There's not a CISO on the planet not dealing with at least some firefighting. The newer their program, the newer their role, perhaps they're a first-time CISO for the company, like the company's never had a CISO before. You're going to have more firefighting than somebody that's got a mature program or inherited a mature program. But there's going to be some firefighting there. So feeling the heat, yes. Does that mess with the long-term security roadmap? Absolutely, it can. The trick is to me to relegate resources to try to keep firefighting contained and to keep the strategic focus on the bigger term vision going and to take advantage of any firefight where it might fuel what you had already espoused as a necessary part of the program to try to accelerate timelines or resources, cooperation from the rest of the business. We were working towards X. The firefight we're going through as we speak is in fact due to the fact that we haven't completed X. Let's accelerate X and get it going. So those are some good moments. How do you make decisions to buy a security product, he asks. I don't, is the honest answer there. I don't anymore. I am going to rely on my lieutenants. I'm going to rely on the folks who actually are going to be managing and utilizing those tools. I've got a problem to solve, and I'm going to come to my team with a problem statement, and I'm going to say, go research the top three who solved this problem, or maybe I've already got some good stuff, and I've got a recommendation of my own. But at the end of the day, even if I'm the one recommending, I am relying on architects and engineers to tell me, this solution sucks. This one's good. We did a POC and this one failed to capture the things. This one had too many false positives. This one required way too much work to tweak and configure. Whatever the feedback might be, decisions are going to be based 99% by my lieutenants. I mean, I'm making the final call and writing the check, sure, but I'm going off their input. Karen Crowley, Director of Solutions Marketing at Deep Instinct, she says, how do you justify additional spend for cybersecurity solutions, especially after a big investment? How does a vendor capture your attention? The vendor capturing my attention piece, I think we just covered, so I'll focus on the justifying additional spend. This ties back to what I was talking about, about risks. I don't blindly say we have a problem in a general vague way and we're going to solve it. Like, we need MFA. I am going to speak to specific risks. We have a risk of ransomware. Ransomware is best solved by MFA. We're going to get MFA as a result of this known risk. This known risk has been measured and quantified. It could be a really bad thing for us cost-wise if we don't do it. Implementing MFA is going to be the following difficulty and cost, and we think it's worthwhile. If you stay risk-focused and you stay on a risk punch list, then additional spend for cybersecurity solutions doesn't come up very often. It's more like, hey, we managed to get one through eight tackled more quickly than we thought, so let's visit number nine and ten on the list now. It becomes more of that proposition. Now, that's not to say that this doesn't tie into the firefighting question we just had as well. Sometimes things happen, and sometimes you end up with what you thought was not that big a risk or a lower priority risk, and suddenly it's got the spotlight on it. In those moments, sometimes you have to justify additional spend. Hopefully those don't come up too often. Generally speaking, the business is going to be bought into the problem statement if the problem statement is truly there. And I've gotten out-of-band funding for those moments as well in the past. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Howdy, y'all. Asset management for IT and security sure ain't easy. And our networks are fixing to get more complex. But I reckon there's a better way of doing things. And it starts with Axonius. Axonius helps you lasso everything in your environment. Devices, users, software, and more. To provide an always up-to-date inventory, uncover gaps, and automate action. You want a free walkthrough of the platform? Head on over to axonius.com get dash a dash tour. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com slash get dash a dash tour. 
Charles Chibueze, again, with lots and lots of letters after his name, uh, vulnerability management and pen testing and DevOps, says, what gives you the confidence to sleep well at night? Having a good team. The most important thing for me is having a good team. That's the confidence that lets me sleep, knowing they're on it, not just me, but them too. And they're on it to a great degree. They know what they're doing. They're proactive. They bring me problems with solutions in hand already. Having a good team is what lets me sleep. Sky Kennedy says, there are many jobs open in the cybersecurity industry. Many go unfulfilled for long stretches of time because the right person is not available or the description is too complex for a person who might have some of the skills, but not all. What is your advice for people who would like to get into the industry, but might not have all the skills or might have many of the skills, but not a college degree or might just be intimidated by technology altogether? I'm going to argue if you're intimidated by technology altogether, then GRC or nothing, right? Head to the GRC side of the fence but you're still going to have to learn the tech and you're still going to have to partner with folks that know the tech. So maybe this isn't the right career for you if you are that not technology centric. As to the rest of it, hang in there. There are plenty of entry level positions out there that are mislabeled. Three years required entry level. Like that's not entry level, folks. That's three years required. There are folks who do, in fact, hire true entry level positions. I'm one of the managers and leaders who believes in the promote up backfill philosophy which means I do get openings. I have had plenty of interns over the years who got converted from intern to new employee to a successful, more senior ranked employee. I have grown folks from I'm in school and have no experience whatsoever. As to the college degree or not college degree, there's a lot of debate. Some people are going to be snobs about that and insist on it. Personally, I worked a great amount of my career without a college degree. I didn't finish my undergrad until I was an adult. And then I've got a master's degree after that, but the vast bulk of my career was without a college degree. So I'm one of the ones that doesn't care about that. And don't forget military and other backgrounds like that that often bring just exactly the right skills to the table. So don't forget that crowd either. Ulrich Baum says he's fighting against phishing. He says, following on from this, how do you help other board members make sense of the cyber threat landscape? Or more presumptively, why is addressing cyber risk crucial to any company? So... This goes back to my mantra of business first, risk second, technology or cyber third, however you want to phrase that. And this is all about learning how business risk is measured, managed, and articulated at the board level already. There's a board that was there before you were there, and you need to learn their ways and means. You need to learn how and what they expect. You need to learn what their concepts of risk are, and you need to tailor your cyber risk to fit into that larger model. If you have an enterprise risk team, you want to partner with those guys right away. If you don't, maybe there's a risk member or a risk committee on the board. You want to partner with those folks right away. Don't be afraid to reach out and be proactive. Don't be afraid to ask questions. How do you do it? What are you doing? I've got a whole cyber program over here and I'm prepared to report it in the way you are used to. Let's talk and start the conversation there. Vishal Garg says, how often do you meet with the board? And if you've only had 15 minutes, what would you discuss with them? It totally depends on the company. I've met boards as often as quarterly and as little as every year or even two years. I think in one case, I think it was a two-year lag in board meetings because I got bumped on the annual and got brought up for the next one. So that's going to vary based on the company and based on the board and based on their caring about cyber, their cyber savviness, their caring about technology and technology savviness how organized and prepared they are already at enterprise risk level. There's a lot of factors that dictate how often they want to talk to the CISO, and it's them setting that schedule, not you. If you only had 15 minutes, what would you discuss with them? The top material risks and what I'm doing to address them. That would be it, per what we talked about a little bit earlier here. 
Dan Sheehan, CISO says, how do you mentor your teams? Are you mentoring your teams and leaders so they can move into a CISO role? Absolutely. One of the first things I do with every member of my team is find out what they want and where they're going and what they're looking for. Some folks are perfectly content to stay where they are. Some folks maybe want to evolve to a team lead role and stay technical. Some folks are looking for management track. Find out what they want and where they want to be and have an honest conversation with them about here's where I think you are versus that goal and here's what I think you're going to need to get there and start offering them and giving them everything you can provide to get them there and keep this in mind. The reality is most folks who have a goal of where they want to be in their career, that goal does not necessarily have them still working for you at the company you're at today. In other words, if somebody wants to be a CISO, they're not saying, I want your job. They're saying, I'm going to be a CISO at some other place. And maybe they want to be a CISO in a different industry. And maybe they want to be a person who runs their own consulting company. Maybe it's a pen tester who wants to start a pen testing company. You're going to have a lot of folks whose career goals take them away from you. And that's okay. You should have the relationship with your team. The honesty and the transparency should be both directions where they feel comfortable to tell you, my ultimate goal is to leave you in two years and go do this other thing. Great. I'm going to help you get there. I'm going to invest in you now with the skills you need to get to your next target the same way I would if you were staying with me. Make no distinction when you are helping your teams and supporting them. You will find that this does a couple of things. Number one, they end up sticking around longer than you think they would because you're the kind of boss that invests in them, and that's a hard thing to leave. Number two, even if they do leave, they're never going to forget you, and they will always be on your Rolodex for possible future roles down the road. So invest in your teams, even if they want to leave you, that's fine. Find out what they want to do and help them out. John Janik or Janik here, chief technologist, ex-diplomat, says, what are the open source software tools you can't live without? Obviously, Linux, 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 even BSD, the different distributions, things like Kali Linux and these kinds of things. And then obviously just some of the basic tools like Nmap, PCAP and all those, like some of this stuff is just never going away and is always vital. Even as a CISO who isn't hands-on keyboard hardly ever, I will find myself running tools like that still to this date. Do you think SDP and hardware keys protocols like FIDO2 have kept pace with the transformation as things accelerated during the pandemic? I don't think it's an issue of the tech standards or protocols not keeping caught up. I think it's more an operational concern. I think we fell behind, but I think it was operationally. And I think at this point, the pandemic happened long enough. There's enough work from home, been consistent now for a couple of years. I think folks, for the most part, are caught up. His last question is, are standards moving fast enough? And the answer is no, 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 no. The second a framework is ratified, invented, published, whatever you want to call it, depending on its source, it's already old and stale. And this is part of our problem in our industry. You have to stay current as best you can with the new ones. So when CIS 7.1 became CIS V8, adopt that, get on that. When Rev 4 of 853 becomes Rev 5, get on it. And keep in mind that a multiplicity of frameworks is probably better than any one because you're going to find stupid questions like SOC 2 still talks about antivirus in specific, doesn't consider the presence of EDR, these kinds of things. You're going to find that you need more than one framework and that you need to develop some of your own supplements and enhancements to frameworks in an ideal world to sort of really maintain and ratify standards that are caught up with where the tech stack really is and the trends in the industry. It's more than tech stack that changes, right? Eduardo R. Ortiz, Global Head of Cybersecurity at Tektronic Industries, he says for the five-time CISO, how has cybersecurity insurance changed throughout the years? Have all your previous companies accepted plus minus the same level of risk? When I started, there was no cybersecurity insurance. I started that far back. So the answer was once upon a time, it didn't exist. 
Then it came out and everybody got all kinds of excited that they could transfer risk and clap their hands and walk away. Obviously, that's not really how it's supposed to work. The insurance companies didn't have a lot of wherewithal in those days. There was a lot of wild, wild west. The premiums and the rates and the payouts and all this were all over the map. There wasn't a lot of consistency to it. Very quickly after having to make a bunch of big payouts, they wised up. They got more critical. Then came the era of questionnaires. And now I think we're in the era of really targeted questionnaires to the point where some of these insurance vendors are actually saying you will deploy this brand or that brand or at least one of these two or three brands. You will prove it's configured in the following way. Like it's way more than a questionnaire these days. And some of them are even refusing to insure events like ransomware and some other stuff now. So has it changed over the years? Absolutely. I think the insurance companies have wised up. They've gotten more accurate at their game. They're insisting on better capability from us before they're willing to insure us. I think that's the big change. Have companies previously accepted plus minus the same level of risk as a result of all this? No, they have not. We used to accept way more than we wanted. We had no choice. Then we couldn't transfer. And I think there's been an evolution there. His next question, he says, from a team perspective, how does the composition of the current team compare to the one you had the first time as a CISO? Oh, night and day difference. In my earliest days, I didn't even have a GRC function within cyber. There was a greater GRC function in enterprise risk management that was there. That was guys that weren't cyber specific, gals that weren't cyber specific that were doing the GRC type functions that was completely outside. And so it was treated more like an audit function. And I regarded them as outsiders sniffing around my business. And I was like, oh, I got to deal with these guys again. There was an evolution where GRC got folded in with cyber and a cyber specific GRC team was formed. So that was a big one. And then in terms of the tech stack team, back in the day, it was firewalls, firewalls, firewalls. And then there were solutions like, I normally don't name brands, but I don't know what you would call it, but like Iron Mail for anti-spam and these kinds of things. And eventually this stuff evolved to the modern, way overly complex, way more nuanced tech stack that we have today. Obviously, cloud was a big driver and changer as well. The whole evolution of DevOps, there's just been a lot of change over the years for sure. All right, Mike Wilkes, CISO over at Security Scorecard. He and I are getting to be buddies. We've hung out a few times and done a few panels and things together. And he asked a really good set of questions here that I deliberately put off to this show, specifically because I wanted to really get the answers right. And there was some nuanced stuff he's asking after here. So Mike, here's my shot at your questions. First one says, how about discussing compensation? What are company financials that help inform the size of a budget for InfoSec? 100 to 1 for developers to InfoSec has been used in the past. How has that changed over the last couple of years with more infrastructure as a service and cloud tools maturing or percent of total IT budget? So I'm a big believer in every one of those numbers is a bad idea. And here's why. I know years ago when I was in IT, focused on security, but before I was really truly what I would consider to be a security guy, I was an IT guy back then. I was told this figure that Microsoft used at the time, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like $35 a month per employee automatically taken out of everybody's budget and goes to IT and covers everything and all the overhead and costs. That is a lovely world where you can actually cost that stuff out, predict that, plan that, and just simply say, per head, it's X. That's a rare phenomenon. And in the security space, much harder to calculate. And so we fall back on these other kind of standards that we've seen, 100 to 1 for developers to InfoSec, for example. Another one that may or may not have applicability, depending on DevOps, depending on DevSecOps, depending on how much security is truly embedded and integrated in your DevOps, depending on whether you even have DevOps, it could just be developers on old school on-premises apps and whatever, 
there's going to be so much wild variation in the amount of security the team already has in integral and internal to their processes versus what you need to do as the separate security organization. There's going to be technology factors. There's a million and one reasons why any kind of ratio, 100 to 1, 80 to 1, 200 to 1, whatever, is going to be bad math. It's just impossible to pull that together. Same thing with the budgets that talk about percentage of total IT. Like I've seen models where it's like IT gets 5% of the total budget for the company and then InfoSec gets X percent, I don't know, whatever, 5 or 10% of that IT budget and on and on you go. Any of those approaches I think are wrong for the same reasons. It's just inaccurate and it's off mission. And when I say off mission, this ties back to everything I've answered on these earlier questions about risk. If you are measuring your known risks and if those risks are stack ranked appropriately, and if the cost of dealing with those risks is measured and ready and the business is bought in with you, what you should be doing as a CISO is just simply running through a punch list. Your budget every cycle is known budget to get through, A, maintaining your organization as an organization, and then B, targeting this specific punch list of risk. If you're budgeting any way other than that level, you are getting yourself in trouble as a CISO because when budget cuts come, you can immediately say, we said there were 10 things that we wanted to tackle. These are the costs of tackling the 10 things. You're telling me I have to reduce budget. Pick the one or two or three that we're no longer doing. Business, that's the challenge to you, to my peers, to the folks that had concerns and risks and were stakeholders in the risks. Let's have this conversation as a collective business and decide what we're doing and not doing. That's the way to do it. That way your budget is planned and well-documented up front with intention and targets. And if adjustments have to happen, same thing. You can talk about intention and targets. Mike then asks, what about reporting structure? What was your best reporting relationship? Was it CEO, CTO, CFO, legal or otherwise? As a CISO throughout my career in different roles, and sometimes they switch bosses on you within a given company, whatever it might be, I have reported to CIOs, CFOs, CEOs, legal risk, and the board. So of all of those various structures, I would say reporting to the board directly or reporting to the CEO directly is the best and the most preferred. Not for the obvious reasons. Everyone always talks about a seat at the table and everyone thinks if I'm reporting higher up, I've got more authority myself and blah, 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 blah. It's more about conflict of interest. A CIO is intrinsically going to be up against security needs sometimes. And if you're reporting into the CIO, they've got to make the hard call and have the ethics and have the self-awareness to figure out, am I deploying these new servers over here or am I securing the servers I already have today? These are both business-driven. There's a known risk. The CISO's done their job with the stack ranking, et cetera, et cetera. I know what the priorities are. Got to make that hard call. And very often, the CIO is forced to lean towards future productivity, uptime, the other pressures that they're under. And so CIO ends up being a bad reason for that. CFO, you would think again, oh, cool, I'm reporting directly to the one with the purse strings. I'm going to get all the budget. The reality is a CFO doesn't understand security. You're going to end up spending a lot more time selling your mission, selling your problem statements, not just your solutions. And very often the one with the purse strings is also the same one to slam the purse shut at the drop of a hat. When belt tightening happens, the CFO is the first champion of that belt tightening. And so there's a plus and a minus in terms of the purse strings there. And so I'd say CFO is not so hot there. CTO and COO totally depends on the company and the organization. Sometimes that's a really good fit, sometimes not. Which finally brings me to CEO and board. I've reported directly to the board for a brief period at one company only. They punted me back to the CEO after a certain set of things was dealt with. It was a very interim thing. That was stressful. That was very stressful. And the reason is that a board is there to govern, not to manage. And if you are reporting directly to the board, you have given them a management burden. 
And it's an art form. It's tricky. You are now completely self-managing to a certain extent. And to another extent, you're sort of torquing the board out of their natural groove. And that's a challenge. I think folks reporting to the board, it's not as easy or as set as it feels. And people think it's instant access to solving the problems. It's not necessarily. But the benefits of reporting to the board are you get the transparency you need. You get the focus on the driven risks and the risk drivers both. You get the focus on the things you want to focus on. That's why it's a plus. It's not so much about the reporting, but there's a lot of minuses there too, so be cautious. CEO, therefore, ends up being my most preferred. It's kind of the sweet spot. You're getting up to the top, yes. So maybe in theory, you've got more authority, yes. But the reality is you're at the pinnacle of management, not governance. It's the best fit. It makes the most sense. You've eliminated conflicts of interest. You're truly getting down to brass tacks on business decisions. And you're truly participating as a business leader when you're reporting to the CEO. So that's really the pluses there. And those are my answers. Folks, this is the end of the show. I want to thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. <laughs>